For New Yorkers, she memorably burst upon the stage in 1985 in Lanford Wilson's Balm and Gilead, but she had already made her name in Chicago over the preceding decade as a founding member of the Steppenwolf Theatre Company, where she appeared in productions ranging from The Glass Menagerie to Armas and the Man to Educating Rita. While highly successful film and television work took her to California, she's never strayed far from the stage, appearing more recently at Steppenwolf in Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune and Detroit, on Broadway in November and Brighton Beach Memoirs, and off Broadway in Aliyah the Mind and currently in MCC Theater's production of Char White's The Other Place. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm delighted to spend an hour with Laurie Metcalf. Hi, Laurie. Thank you. Hi. Hi, Howard. So let's talk about the other place first. Um, This is a play in which we watch you go through an enormous personal transition, not because of external forces, but because of what's going on inside of you. Exactly. How did you approach dealing with watching a woman who is is breaking down before our eyes? Yes, I've found it to be a kind of a hard play to talk about because you don't want to give too much away. Okay. But we are in our final uh, throes here of the show. So um, it is an internal issue that she's dealing with. Um, the playwright, Shar, who I think has crafted the play so well, stays ahead of the audience for a very long amount of time, um, uses my character at the top of her game. We see her lecturing uh, to a group of doctors on a uh, breakthrough drug that she's come up with for the disease of Alzheimer's. She is uh, fiercely intelligent, and uh, so we see her mid-lecture, and uh, that was Shar's doing so that we see how far someone like that intellectually can unravel. And again, without giving anything away, as a performer, it's not that we watch you progressively deteriorate. The scenes are intercut. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you have a singular journey. You're literally going back and forth from scenes where your difficulty is beginning to when you're at full competence. That strikes me as even more difficult. It was, I knew it would be a challenge to work on. So that's why I was hungry to get to it. I knew I had the part about four months ahead of time and I could not wait to get into the rehearsal room because I knew it would be a challenge of the best kind. I'm also still a little bit flabbergasted at how Char crafted it because, and he admits that it drove him crazy <laughs> to write that show <laughs> because it's, it's, it's the most non-linear play I think I've ever worked on. Really? I mean, we go forwards and backwards and internally in sentences sometimes. It will pop out of a lecture and into a flashback. It became a much more technically of a challenge than I ever thought that it would be. And the play is so verbal that um, we discovered in the rehearsal room that it needs to be sort of thrown forwards. And uh, granted, some of it is is in a lecture form, so it does come out that way. But it's very – the character uses uh, language uh, sort of as a shield. I believe that the character knows a little bit, not specifically, but there's some, something is off and has been off in her mind for a little bit. But she's so intelligent and so witty that she's able to deflect uh, and um, – keep people back on their heels. So she is able to 
postpone what she thinks may be happening to her, postpone dealing with it by covering up quite a bit. Hmm. You had given a quote, I hope it's accurate, that every time you read a script, you want to do it. That's accurate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so obviously you can't. Presumably there's more opportunities <laughs> and other commitments than um, – Yes. Than you can possibly yes. achieve. Yes, and you have to be, I mean, in a practical way. Yeah. When you support your family this way, you know, roles that you undertake have a variety of uh, decisions behind them. So if this show was more difficult technically than you anticipated, mm -hmm. what was it that was the tipping point that made you say, ultimately, yes to this script? On a first reading, and granted, this play, I think, on the page is pretty hard to pick up on. It's very slippery on the page. And I think that Joe Mantello did a really wonderful job of bringing it to life because you could do it bare bone, you could do, or you could do it technically with enhanced way more than we did. I thought he found a very nice medium ground. So I didn't know what to expect from the look of it, or the, uh, uh, I didn't know what the piece as a whole would end up looking like. Um, yeah, just looking like, I guess. But I knew once I got to the end of the play, it moved me in a way that I wasn't quite able to put my finger on. I, and, and so it was just a gut reaction that I know there is a lot in there, and I will – I look forward to finding it in the rehearsal room with the help mm. of Joe and the help of Shar, who was there through most of the uh, rehearsal process. I hope I can ask this question concisely. You, obviously, through your work with Steppenwolf, have had the wonderful experience of working repeatedly with the same company of actors in a variety of pieces. The other place is the third time you've worked with a non-Steppenwolf member mm -hmm. named Dennis Boutsikaris. Mm -hmm. In the third time, you have played husband and wife. Mm -hmm. There's the benefit of shorthand when you've worked with actors before. True. But each husband and wife you're playing is different. How do you find your way into that relationship with different scripts when you're the same people? Well, I think when you're playing a relationship – now, um, the three times, they've been three very different productions, The Quality of Life, Brighton Beach Memoirs, and now The Other Place. The relationships have all been very different. But when we started, when we first met – um, three or four years ago to work on the quality of life. The hump was just trying to figure out how to um, make it look like we actually had a relationship. And so then in the subsequent shows, that part had already happened. I think we were able to sell that we looked like on stage that we we did have a relationship and then we could modify what type of relationship it was in those other two shows. Yeah, because inevitably each of those couples have had completely different forces at work in their life right. up until that point. When you did Quality of Life, interestingly enough, I gather you were the caregiver and he was the one who was ill. Yeah. And now at the other place, it's somewhat reversed. That's right. I didn't think of that before. That's true. Yes. So very interesting. Let's talk about how you got into theater. You grew up in Illinois. You were born in Carbondale and then raised in Edwardsville. That's right. So where are we in Illinois <laughs> relative to the well, places not, we might know? We're not anywhere near a theater. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. <laughs> we are outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. 
And as I read, theater really wasn't a big deal for you, even up through high school. It wasn't until you got to college that, that theater started to exert a pull on you. I got up some nerve when I was a junior and senior in high school and actually auditioned for a couple of plays. Did you get them? Yes, I, I played very small parts in a couple of plays. It was very, it was very difficult for me. I, I, uh, um, I was very shy, and and um, uh, so I, it took a lot of nerve just to go audition among peers, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I immediately was hooked, and when you're hooked, I think you know it, and I think it's for a lifetime. If you were shy, and I'm curious about this because I had my own shyness issues, which brought me to the theater. First of all, what was the impulse that allowed you to even try out? Do you remember? Um, I was very curious about it, and I thought, well, I'll put one toe in the water and just go in and 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 try and get a small part in a in a, a large cast show. Mm-hmm. And that's how I just sort of eased my way in, uh, and. Um, but like I said, uh, the hook was immediate, and I'm so grateful that I've never lost the passion for it. Hmm. Um, it doesn't seem like work to me. It, I crave it. I thrive on it. It's the only time I feel uh, so creative and so um, energized, and I just um, I can't get enough of it. And and as weirdly as the um, TV and movie work has sort of dried up in L.A. Um, it's been the perfect time for me to gravitate back to doing only theater. I mean, uh, it's, it's you know, problematic uh, to still to make a living at it. But um, it's really always been by far the only media I've wanted to work in. And hmm. I, I don't know if it's because I started out in it, so I feel like I know it better. Um, I, I know that it's between theater and, um, film and TV. It's the one that I, I'm by far better at, or uh, I mean, I feel more comfortable in it. I don't doubt myself in it. I doubt myself in the other two. And that gets in my way when I try and do the other two. So if these couple of small parts in high school got the taste in your mouth that was never going to go away. When you went to college, Illinois State University, you first were going to major in German. Well, yes. Yeah, then <laughs> we're going to major in anthropology. Yeah. Were you yeah. were you fighting theater? Yes. Okay. Yes. Why? Because the practical side of me said, I'll never make a living at this. Mm-hmm. Now, being a German major, I don't know what that other voice was telling me. No, actually, I thought, well, I'll be an interpreter. And I think deep down there was something about the... I I ended up being an interpreter. I am an interpreter. And you are an anthropologist. Yes, I am. You're absolutely right. I am those two things. I love studying behavior, and I love interpreting it in the most creative way that I can. Do you remember what finally tipped you to say, oh, the heck with this, I'm going to major in theater? Yes, it was uh, the fact that we beget- – we, um, Put together, uh, I think seven of us, uh, Steppenwolf, during a summer when I was a junior going to be a senior. And that's when I finally said, you know what, I I know this place is going to be here for a while. And I can be a secretary on the side. And, you know, we're not paying ourselves any money. But I can do this for a number of years and be with these people and be safe and uh, be able to make a living, you know. 
And so I will, in order to graduate a semester early, I switched my major to theater because I had so many theater credits and I was able to graduate early so that I could get straight back up to Highland Park, Illinois and join the rest of the gang. Well, in a very simple statement, you've glossed over sort of a very <laughs> big moment, which is, so we put, seven of us put together Steppenwolf. <laughs> I mean, how did it come together? The original core trio, mm-hmm. what we heard, was Gary Sinise, Jeff Barry, and Terry Kinney, correct? Yes. yes. And so, who were the other four, and how did they come Um, from? Girlfriends. <laughs> the math doesn't work, or somebody was very popular, but... um. Well... That we, uh, they, and all of us, it all came together at once. But, um, you know, it was a very uh, insular group, mm-hmm. might I, <laughs> if you get my point. But um, we asked, uh, to, you know, the three of them and two girlfriends asked Two other people, and does that make seven? Yeah. Yes. Hmm. There you go. But you were so sure that that was going to work for you? No. I thought that it would last a summer. Mm-hmm. I said years, but I, I really thought that we – I thought – I still didn't think it would – I could make a living at it. You right. Know? I was always going to be a secretary when – during those early years, and I was. Um, it, and a for, darn good one, according to Joan Allen. I was a real good one. <laughs> you typed, typed like a demon? I typed like a demon, and it thrilled me to no end to move that stack of paperwork on the left side of my desk at 8 a.m. to the other side by 5 p.m. I took real, I took pride in it, and um, I just would get, I had blinders on. I would, uh, you know, not take a lunch and just go, just tear into it. But as a result, when we talk about the start of a Steppenwolf, you're all doing day jobs. Yeah. You're coming together. You're rehearsing at night. Yeah. You can either rehearse a show or perform a show, probably. Yes. Or you got stuck with directing, which no one wanted to do. Yeah. It was. It was like, oh, I get the crap job. I have to direct this time. Huh? <laughs> did you ever do that? I did. What yeah. did you direct for? Well, I directed once we moved into the city. I direct. Did uh, a crazy late night play called um, Big Mother with uh, John Malkovich and uh, a couple of other people that were actually outside the company. It was very successful, but I did not enjoy it, and I never, I never returned to, to uh, directing. <laughs> well, in the early days, in terms of some of the credits, The Lover, The Seahorse, Our Late Night, Glass Menagerie, if I remember correctly, Glass Menagerie was a big breakthrough for you in terms of recognition. Yes. Both, well, within the company, but by the larger community in Chicago. Yes. We were up in a suburb of Chicago, Highland Park, in an 88-seat basement of a church. And Glass Menagerie, um, w- what we did with it was just different enough that it got a lot of attention from Chicago, and um, we won some Jeff Awards, the Joseph Jefferson Award for that. And that's when um, people noticed this little tiny group up in a suburb, and that allowed us to then get enough momentum behind ourselves to move into the city, into a rental space called the Jane Adams Hull House. Hmm. What was just different enough about it? Um, John Malkovich played Tom, and he... Um, 
played there was no secret to his homosexuality Mm -hmm. which i think that was different and i played laura and there was no way out for her there this was not just um sometimes you see laura played as a nice looking girl that it seems a little shy and if she would just comb her hair out and stand up straight she could have a boyfriend no problem this was a terribly disturbed uh young woman who was n- never going to be able to live on her own hmm. ever and you saw it as soon as you saw her you saw the problem and i think that it made the problem for tom and amanda darker and harder to gloss over it made them look, seem more desperate that they would not admit that this uh that their sister or daughter had a problem hmm. Certainly the reputation of Steppenwolf, especially once it burst on the New York scene, was that it was highly physicalized theater. Some people would say rock and roll theater, perhaps simply because of the choice of the name. But the plays that I read, certainly for your early years, don't seem like they're in that same vein. Were you also involved in work that would fit that stereotype? Or do you think that stereotype was never true? Uh, No, I think it was true. And I think it carried itself into even plays like Glass Menagerie or Balm and Gilead, I think it was more of an attack. It didn't have to be uh, literally physical, but there was an attack that seemed aggressive Hmm. uh, in, in roles. I guess that's how I would define it. Well, you mentioned Balm and Gilead, which was 1980 originally at Steppenwolf. Now, that was a play that wasn't at that point that old a play, but it certainly was not a play that people had seen very much. Right. Were there any expectations when you all got into that? Because it, ha- it takes, what, about 25 yeah, uh, actors? I think we or? had 28. Okay. And uh, that might have been one of the reasons why it's, it was very rarely done. I mean, yes, it wasn't that old, but, you know, that's the bigger the cast, I mean, the harder it is to, to mount it. But... Um, but in going into it, I mean, it's a seemingly on the page, very amorphous piece of theater. So when the decision was made to do it, I presume it was John Malkovich who directed it who said, I want to direct this piece of theater. Do you all understand where it might end up or was it you just went along for the ride saying, OK, John wants to do it. We'll go with John. I think it was uh, a group decision to do it. We did everything by group, mm-hmm. you know, had to. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody knew uh, what kind of a splash it would make, first in Chicago and then in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something so special. I mean, you have all these people woven in, and it looked like it was improv, but it wasn't. Things were very specific and overlapping dialogue. And then, and then John took it a step further and would create freezes on stage with spotlights, very theatrical. That part wasn't written in, but what Lanford Wilson did do beautifully was the overlaps and people coming in and out and disappearing, showing up again. And and then smack dab in the middle of it, this this 20-something minute monologue where the where the focus just came all the slowly into a pinpoint on a little stool at a diner on you on me and on glenn headley who listened 
to me and was the other half of that monologue, you know, because it really was a two-character scene, even though she wasn't speaking as much as me. And then again, it would explode back out. It was very theatrical. Um, I don't know that it would have made as big of a splash if it hadn't had those sort of oh, just really spectacular uh, visuals thrown onto it. And um, the music that John chose was fantastic. And it was cranked up. And it was Tom Waits and Ricky Lee Jones and Bruce Springsteen. And it was just, I mean, it just, it got the adrenaline going. And then it would smash to um, all these people just like rats infesting the stage. And then all of a sudden, everybody's gone. There's a girl sitting on it on a stool, like spilling her guts out, but being funny and sad at the same time. It was very, very theatrical. And there's not, uh, it's been, um, well, well, how many years? 31 years since the first production in Chicago. And I swear to God, about every three months, somebody stops me and says that they, say, tells me that they saw it, and they each have some memory of it, a visual, usually. And it, it, uh, I, I just feel so lucky to have been a part of that because it really, um, so many, it affected a lot of people. Well, as one of the people, I'm not stopping you on the street because I already got you trapped, but I mean, I did see that production. Interestingly enough, had had no particular desire to see it. A friend had an extra ticket. I went along and, it was mind-blowing. Interestingly, my memory is less the visual, though I remember it visually, as it was one of the rare times, one of the only times, I watched interpolated music into a show that was done so perfectly, I could have sworn it had been written for mm, the show. Mm. And that's that's my memory, as you say, the crashing of the music and the moments. And I remember the music at times, it was edited so that the same moment would repeat suddenly. That's right. Even in the music and on, in the staging to reemphasize. People also, whenever they seem to speak to you about your theater career, they do talk about this this 20-minute monologue. It was certainly an extraordinary way for an actress to debut in New York is to have everything focused down. And as you say, Glenn Headley, listening to you and reacting to you, it is a difficult monologue. Was it difficult to do every night? And I say that because there are loops and repeats within the monologue itself. How, how tough was it? Or at a certain point, did it just click? I wasn't tough to do every night. I actually looked forward to it so much because was and it remains one of my favorite pieces of writing, uh, plain and simple, but then also to perform because everything imaginable was in it. At first, you start off listening and judging this girl who's very naive, clueless, and actually really... uh irritating someone you would not want to be stuck on a bus with and gradually you start to see gradually you begin to feel for her and yet she stays interestingly she stays irritating and she stays stupid and she doesn't make any connections but you make them for her 
and you begin to at the end you feel for her and um and what she and and she's uh alone in New York City doesn't have a clue and probably will not survive i mean i don't mean literally but she will not be able to learn how to make her way and she's just going to be thrown to out to you know to these uh other drifters who are she's just going to be sucked under and uh it was just like um oh so beautifully written in that way with you know he got laughs out of it uh and then he got um just a uh, real tenderness out of it and that one technically was crafted so that Tom Waits's beautiful song Waltzing Matilda started coming in underneath you couldn't even tell it crept up crept up blackout spotlight and then the swelling of the music as this character just kept talking and you couldn't even hear what she was saying anymore hmm. I, I just love all that that technical stuff that got imposed onto a gorgeous piece of writing now we've we've sort of jumped immediately from the Chicago success to New York success what's what's very interesting to note is that there was a f- almost a four-year gap from the time you'd done it in Chicago there were plenty of other shows in between it's not that you did this it was a smash it got picked up taken to New York and you're the toast of the town you you did you know a bunch of other shows Getting Out at Wisdom Bridge, Loose Ends at Steppenwolf, Arms in the Man at Steppenwolf, Virginia Woolf at Northlight. <laughs> First of all, had you put away Balm and Gilead? Was there ever any expectation when it ended in Chicago that it would go on? No, we did it first in Chicago, a little tiny space, the whole house that we had. I think it sat a uh, hundred people, and then we um, took a little bit of time off. And uh, you know, logistically, this play was very hard to yeah, well, get together. You had to together. hold together a cast if you say it was twenty-eight. Twenty-eight, yeah, and uh, we didn't have the money, you know, but it did move to a slightly bigger space mm-hmm. in Chicago. And then it was only the collaboration between Steppenwolf and Circle Rep that was able to get it to New York. Some of the uh, Chicago people in smaller parts did not come, and it was filled in by sh- uh, Circle Rep ensemble members. So it was two ensembles getting together. Right, because you had like Danton Stone, That's if right. I remember correctly, yeah, who, was a, yeah. who was a regular Jonathan there. Hogan, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, there was a um, ton of people. It was, it was a half and half. And half. Interesting. So after – now, you, as you say, you were a secretary, you were making your money, you're doing your shows at night. Was there some point – prior to coming to New York with Baum and Gilead, that you were able to give up the secretarial work? Had Steppenwolf advanced to a point where you could live based on just doing the theater work? Yes, once we moved into the city mm-hmm. um, and turned equity, to tell you the truth. And we had to do that. Um, uh, we resisted for as long as we could because we didn't have the money to pay ourselves. Hmm. You know, but we finally had to. We, we were charging $3 a ticket wow. up in Highland Park. But so we had to start turning um, equity, uh, you know, one actor at a time. And so when that happened um, and we were able to pay ourselves just a nominal fee, I was able to make a <laughs> very frugal living doing the theater. But but in order to do that, we were doing plays back to back to back, rehearsing one in the day and performing the last the previous one at night. So there were there it was all overlapped just to keep, you know, a paycheck coming in. Hmm. Now I mentioned that I had known about the Glass Menagerie. I certainly I saw the Bomb and Gilead when it came to New York. 
of all the shows that you did in the first almost decade at Steppenwolf, are there particular ones that stand out for you that people might not know about or remember because they were only in Chicago? Is that the list? Here, take a look. At <laughs> yeah, I look at the top of the I list. I mean, those two do stand out yeah. to me, obviously. Oh, Coyote Ugly. Mm-hmm. I see that there. Um, no you know relation that, to the film of the same name. No <laughs> relation at all. This is a Lynn Seifert play yeah. that I find hugely amusing. And that was a good one. I had a ball with that. I had a ball with the Miss Firecracker contest. I remember that I was pregnant during that one and I played Tessie Mahoney, who was the um, ugliest girl in town. I decided to make her the ugliest girl in the universe. Oh, uh, well, somebody must have li- somebody must have liked her if you were walking around pregnant. So, <laughs> right, there's a different uh, spin on it. Uh, geez, Edu- educating Rita was so fun. Now, who did you do that with? Who did you play? Austin episode? Pendleton, really, and Jeff Perry directed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that one did move. It moved that, that to came to New side. York to the yeah. West Side Arts. Yeah, 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 and that was a riot. I love that. Um, my thing of love actually came to Broadway for about a second and a half. But that was much later. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. that. You're into we're into the mid nineties by yeah, the yeah, time yeah. we get to to my thing of love. So let me ask you the question, and I've asked this of Steppenwolf members before. In some ways, the success of Bomb and Gilead, as well as Malkovich and Garrisonese in True West. True West, and the rapid succession of these, started to fragment the core. That the original, because suddenly you were all being recognized, you were all getting work, whether it was film, whether it was television, certainly, you know. If it was 84, 85 that you did Bomb and Gilead, Roseanne began in 88. What was the impact for you on the impact on Steppenwolf as these opportunities came along? Hmm. Yes, it became increasingly hard for the people who remained in Chicago to um, keep the place going. And uh, everybody – it's kind of a double-edged sword. You go off and do something else and you get a little known for it, whether it's in movies or TV, so that when you do return to the company to do a play, it's a little bump. It's a little boost, you know, either to the uh, subscribers or for for press, you know, and yet you're gone for most of that time. So it's uh, it's tricky. Um, and those that stayed home and don't have the same level of recognition, then it's a different dynamic yes. because how are you a company? The audience at least does not perceive you as a company, even if internally you still feel you can work that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. Um, there's guilt involved, you know, <laughs> but – but um as I keep returning, which I try and do as much as I can and like – um, I was just there, you know, a few months ago doing Detroit. So um, it still is such a home and it's such a comfort to know that it's there, you know, and it's taken off on its own. I mean, there's 40-something people in the ensemble now, the majority of which now I have not worked with, hmm. you know. So that, So I look forward to that also. In terms of people joining the ensemble, I mean, because I've spoken with people who were early with the company and then I've spoken with people who joined, the decision for someone to join the ensemble, is that a decision that 
all of you who are already in the ensemble get a voice in? Or is that the purview of just the artistic leadership? It used to be we would literally, I'm talking ages ago, put our heads down on the table and not look and vote, put our hands up in the air and not look and, you know, vote people. Somebody had to look. Somebody was looking. (laughs) Yeah. It was probably Gary. I don't know. (laughs) Somebody um, It used to be like that because we cared about every tiny little decision that was made, you know, down to, all right, we're doing True West. Who's going to bring in five toasters, Mm. you know? And then as it grew and grew and grew, that decision now rests solely with the artistic director. Interesting. So you had the opportunity through the 90s, even, you know, while you were doing Roseanne and doing films, as you say, you went back. Little Egypt, or that was just before Roseanne. Wrong Turn at Lungfish, My Thing of Love, which you mentioned, Libra. I mean, I'm very curious about Pot Mom. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll ask you that at that in a minute. Um, I'm curious as to whether there were other offers for you to do stage on your hiatuses and on your breaks, or Not whether really. it was. Not really. You know, I guess I've never even thought about. I never did the regional theater thing. Right. Ever. I had a home to go to. And so always on a hiatus, on hiatus summers from Roseanne, which was nine years, you know, I would go there. I didn't even explore any other option, you know? Interesting. Okay. So first, just for fun, tell me about Pop Mom. Pop Mom is a wonderful play by Justin Tanner who has a following in L.A. So he's 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 been writing in L.A. for many, many years. He also wrote this, um, and it's it's sort of like uh, it's the TV show Weeds. It's a mom who deals in pot, and then her three kids are always trying to steal it from her. Um, it's been very successful in L.A. for long, long stretches of runs. Um, Justin also wrote a little one-act play called Voice Lessons, which I you did find, in LA again immensely boneheadedly disturbingly funny and I do that I do <laughs> what that is boneheadedly disturbingly oh, funny I mean? don't even know if I can describe it it's a wrong-headed it's a disturbed woman that I play who has it in her head that she's going to take voice lessons demands voice lessons from a coach and that's played by French Stewart and so we did it in L.A. in a tiny space called the Zephyr. It sat 60 people maybe, which is always a luxury to do. I always uh, drift back to these little tiny spaces. I love them. And then uh, we did it here. At, uh, you did it on Theater Row. In Theater Row. And now when the other place closes in uh, two and a half weeks, we're going to do it back in L.A. again for huh. uh, for a month. I get such a kick out of it. And so those are the two Justin Tanner plays. Well, the reason I asked you about, you know, whether you had other offers is that you have spent so much of your stage career working with, within, and admittedly expanding, but within a particular family of artists. So I'm fascinated. How did you end up at the National Theatre in London doing All My Sons in 2001? That's interesting because um, Howard Davies, the director, asked me to come in and replace Julie Walters, who had uh, done it in the smaller space, and they were going to move it into the little Yeah, I saw it down at the Cottesloe. Yes, there, yes. And um, I only knew Howard because Howard had been brought in by the Weislers to try and fix my thing of love. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I so noticed you used the word flute. try. Try, <laughs> yes. And despite all of his talent, he could not fix it. It closed, but we hit it off, and he offered me this gorgeous part, and I became... And I not only did it there, I did it again at the Geffen Theater in L.A., and that was a terrific experience because I got to do it with Len Cario. But when you did it in London, you were replacing. Mm -hmm. The rest of the cast was the same, or was there a whole changeover in the cast? When you Most of the cast was the same. So... What was it? I mean, perhaps you'd covered roles at Steppenwolf, but never. what was it like going? That's into the an only time production? I've ever done that, and thank God I didn't see it. I've never had to come in and do. I've never had to rehearse a play that I've seen before. That mm -hmm. uh, would very much mess me up hmm. um, because I can't. I get the visual. I can't lose it, and I. I also think okay. You know, I see somebody's interpretation of a role, and I see how they cracked it, and. Uh, now, I would crack it in a totally different way, but I can't get that version out of my head. Right. So anyway, I was lucky to go there and be a part of that show. And I was also lucky that I was playing American because I would not even attempt to go there and do a British accent with, hmm. <laughs> with while there were all those British it. people doing American yes, accents yes, uh, yeah. around you. Yeah. But that said, if you don't want the conception of how to crack the role, what was it like playing the role again in presumably a different production, or did Howard Davies do the one you did in LA? No, that was a totally different production. Mm -hmm. Now that's an interesting thing to do to repeat a role. That you've done before. And but I've in, done that in a, with a different cast, different director, different physical production. Yes, yes. I got to re-explore it in a different way. I found it sort of enlightening, uh, very enlightening. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it very much. I didn't know if I would. That's the first time I had done that. You know, when you step away from a role, or when I do, I spend the next, oh, I'd say two years Still daydreaming about, oh, I should have done that. Oh, that's what that line meant. Oh, I, why couldn't I have tried, you know. I continue to revisit it. Mm -hmm. And so this gave me the opportunity to to do that, to put into motion some of the things that I'd come up with in the uh, having put it to rest for a little bit. Yet, because it's a different production, would you say that your Kate Keller – was an expansion of what you did previously, or did you create a new Kate? Well, the the seed was the same. Mm -hmm. You know, it's me, myself, and I can't get that far away from myself, and it's the same writing. So this, the kernel was the same, and I felt like I had understood it, but I was able, I think I was just able to finesse it more. Hmm. Interesting. After the All My Sons, I don't know if there was much in the interim, but um, we saw you on Broadway um, in November. Yeah. Now, one of the things, and, and it's meant as a compliment, is so many people commented on every night you came out sniffling and sneezing and coughing and looking like you were, you were ill, and people – utterly believe they're like oh i just think she's sick tonight oh i mean i'm just wondering about the physicality <laughs> of of going to i mean from everything else at the part just just playing that you know because you had quite the cold in that show well it was interesting because mamet wrote in uh, specifically where she would sneeze 
Really? Yeah, it's all. Yeah, it was all scripted. Yes, mm. and so you know, my only makeup backstage, I, I put my my little tight <laughs> afro wig on and my little glasses, and then uh, I had no makeup except for I would take a red pencil and just go all around my nose. Hmm. You know, <laughs> that was it. Yeah, and uh, load myself up with the Kleenexes, and I practiced sneezing a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I've obviously started with the mundane, but <laughs> the opportunity to uh, appear in the world premiere of a David Mamet play on Broadway uh, opposite yeah. the great Nathan Lane. Uh, yeah. Um, that that just, was it for me. That was it. Boom and boom. I was like, yeah, I don't need to read it. I'll do there. I'll be there. Is that true? You really didn't read it? No. Well, I, yes. Before you I agreed? Was, I, was, I was dying to read it, mm-hmm. but I had made up my mind. You mm-hmm. know, I'm going there. I mean, with David Mamet in the room for the first week and to watch Nathan's process, I had to be there. Hmm. And if I read correctly, it was a very short rehearsal period. Is that correct? It was um, uh, uh, normal. I think. Oh, it was, okay. I think it was three weeks. But, you know, when you're talking three about... Three weeks for a new play is For short. a new play, yes, on Broadway. And um, Nathan came in off book. Now, mm-hmm. you saw that show. You know, he doesn't stop talking. Yeah. I was astounded. I had never done that myself. Usually, I I had never challenged myself that way. Usually, I I like to learn uh, inter rehearsal with the book in hand. I don't know why, but he uh, uh, watching him and watching how it gave him an extra freedom to start. He hit the ground running. You know, first day on your feet. And he's able to. Yeah, I'm gonna pick up this prop over here, but because he had the lines, he get there was not no there was no hindrance with the script, carrying it around like fumbling for pages. And so I've now adopted that technique. Really? Yeah, yeah. I find it very freeing. I thought that it would be a hindrance because I thought that I would get locked into oh, geez, possible you know line readings or something as I memorized it by myself in my you know what in my bedroom by myself but it's it's not i actually like it now well what i'm curious about then is i can understand that if you're doing an existing play a revival we know the text is set this was a new play now david mamet was obviously specific if he's writing in when you sneeze but was there any change to that script over the course of rehearsal because that's one of the hard if you've committed it to memory before you walk in right and to nathan's credit um, the changes that David did in the room on his manual typewriter, <laughs> which was so cool, were, I would say, uh, considering that it was a brand new script, were minuscule. I mean, because he was hearing for the first time, you know, he likes to hear the cadence, I think, of who does it. He hears it as a as a beat, as a rhythm, his language. So as he was hearing it, he would literally take out an er or put in an um and um, to Nathan's credit, he he is like the quintessential acting machine. He would incorporate these things that would have driven 99% of other actors crazy because, hmm. you know, it's hard to make those kind of little adjustments. You know, maybe wiping out a whole page of dialogue could be even easier in a way, you know. I'm going to skip ahead to this next cue, but those little bitty ones – I, I, I don't know how he did it. And uh, he's brilliant. I love him. But acting in it, I mean, one thinks of comedy and certainly the way that he's played 
at times seemed so spontaneous. Do you, as actors, when you're working with someone like David Mamet, actually, other than you're talking the, the cadences, are you allowed to create? Are you allowed to come up with your own ideas? Does he incorporate In things that you do, or is it no? This is my script. You just play it. Well, not in the writing. Mm-hmm. To me, the script itself is should not change. Mm-hmm. It's the actor's um, task to figure out w- why I say that line followed by that one followed by that one. In TV and film, it's way looser that way. And sometimes if the actor says, well, I don't think my character would say that, you know, 15 writers go, okay, <laughs> you know, what do you want to say? Because they can change in television. Yeah, if yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. But a lot of times that just makes things murky because it means sometimes when I go for a long time in a rehearsal period thinking, I don't know why I say that line or that line makes no sense to me or I hate that line. Just boil it down to that. I hate that line. I don't know why my mm. character says that. Usually that turns out to be one of my favorite moments in the play because I have to, by God, figure out why it's there and make it important to me and make it a po- blend it into what I have figured out this character to be. And because I have to struggle so hard that to work so hard to do that, it becomes special. Huh, that's fascinating. Um, Brighton Beach Memoirs, a couple of years ago on Broadway, on this program, I've talked about it with Jessica Hecht. Certainly it was an unfortunate situation where you were rehearsing two shows and prepared to be doing two shows in rep and you only got to fully realize one of them. Yeah. Let's focus on Brighton Beach, though. It was... A different approach to Neil Simon. It wasn't meant to be laugh a minute all the time. And I'm just wondering about your approach to playing that mother who so loved but had to be so tough with her family most of the time. I think, and I didn't see the original, but I think that um, uh, Manny Eisenberg talked about this a little bit, and I agree with him. He was of the opinion that uh, when it was originally done – there was a slightly different – this sounds weird – acting style. Um, maybe just in comedies, I don't know. But that was okay to be a little bit broader and uh, was expected. Right. And then there – and then like with Mamet and, you know, um, the style started to change a little bit and uh, grittier came into fashion or – I don't know. This is just a, a theory, but I th- never thought of that character as anything but honest and real and hardworking and, you know, just a, a fighter. Hmm. So I was very comfortable with the approach of it. Interesting. There probably has been a change even coming out of, of Neil Simon himself because he began writing – in a period where he was writing, you know, flat-out Broadway comedies. And Brighton Beach was the first of the plays in which he was going for something deeper. But the playing style, you're right, probably hadn't yet caught up with what he was writing, even in his own work. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an, an interesting way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Not being able to do the second play... Mm. I mean, I understand there was a great run through. 
yes. that y'all got to you do. know it was oh it was a devastating time i mean mm. um to tell you the truth i wouldn't have signed on just to do brighton beach on its own mm. i was fascinated and of the challenge of doing rep. I've never been able to do it, and I wanted to very much. And when I read the two plays together, they they strengthened each other. And to um, I'm still convinced that had they opened together, you would have seen the strength of them as, a, as uh, two pieces of a puzzle. Uh, uh, the same characters moving ahead a decade and the strength of the – I'm just talking about in my view of my storyline in it, the strength of what Dennis and I tried to create in the, the relationship of the parents holding that family together and see it torn apart mm. to a decade later. And the – oh, the, Broadway Bound is a great piece that I'm just still sick that I didn't get to do. It was a real shame. And I, I think they just would have, like I say, the idea of doing them together was great. The fact that they didn't open together, to me, is why it didn't work. Perhaps the only silver lining is that because it did not go on, you had the opportunity to do Lie of the Mind yeah. literally just a couple of months later. I got so lucky with that because I, I, I truly – I had moved my family here. We thought it was – you know, we had to commit to a year of being in New York and it was over in a flash and I thought, well, here I am and what do I do? It was very depressing time. I've never had hmm. that. The rug pulled out from under me so quickly and hard before. So um, thank God that I had a meeting with Ethan Hawke and he said, you know, would you be interested in playing one of these two mothers? And I said, oh, my God, please, I would love to. Because that that was the only thing that was going to pull me out of my funk hmm. was to get to work on something else, you know? Well, you just said something very interesting. Would you be interested in playing one of these two mothers? Was yeah. he actually saying to you, there are two mothers in this, you could play either one? Yes. So how did you choose well, between them? Well, um, he asked me which one I thought would be my strength. Mm -hmm. And I told him, uh, let's see, my mom's name was Meg, who I played. Yep. And the other mom is uh, Lorraine. Lorraine. Okay. I said, I think my strength would be Lorraine. And he said, okay, well, I am putting this together. Let me think about it. And if I need you for the other part, would you play it? And I said, in a second, yes. Hmm. So he he thought about it like as a musical ensemble and he needed certain voices here, there, and there. And so he gave me Meg. And it was different for me and I had to find my own way into it. Hmm. But that was just what I needed, you know, yeah. was to – Throw all my creativity into finding. Now, how am I going to do this part that I normally, I don't think that I would necessarily have been cast as. Hmm. So he gave me a huge gift. What was it about the part that you don't think you'd have been cast for? How did you see it and how did you see yourself? I saw her on the page as a doormat. And I thought, well, there's, I want to find where she either isn't that 
all the time or never or rebels against it or what's going on in her head? Why why would she choose to be treated that way? That was sort of my, my task on that one. Hmm. And it's interesting, Ethan Hawke having directed it is certainly known as well as an actor. And in all the years of, of Steppenwolf, as you said, very often people, even against their will, would be the directors. Is there <laughs> something different to being directed by someone who not only was but still is a working actor as opposed to someone who is simply – and I shouldn't say simply – but who is primarily a director? No. I think it all just depends on the person. There are actors who who direct – but um, don't – even though they are actors themselves, they don't know how to communicate to an actor. And then there are directors who have never acted a day in their life, but they do know how to communicate to an actor. Hmm. Ethan does know how to communicate, but also his passion for the piece because he chooses his pieces very deliberately and judiciously. And when he's passionate about something – he researches it and sometimes for years like he did on Lie of the Mind and when he's ready to do it, he's ready and it his passion infects everyone and he makes you want to do your best each time you go into the room with him in rehearsal because you want to please him and that's just him. That's just mm-hmm. his personality in anything, any ap- approach that he has to and, – and his approach to life, you know. Mm. But it's very infectious and it makes for a wonderful working environment. Hmm. Normally, when I'm coming to the end of an interview, I have to be careful and sort of gingerly ask, do you know what you might be doing next? But we know what you're going to be doing, which is in the fall, you're going to be doing this new play, Detroit, which came out of Steppenwolf. You did it last year Mm -hmm. at Steppenwolf. Just tell us what you can about Detroit without giving away too much. Detroit is set in a decaying suburb of Detroit. Two houses next door to each other, two couples. They're both lonely couples and are desperate to be friends with each other. And they try to be, but only because their houses are butted up against each other and they see each other every time they go out into their backyards. Otherwise, these people would have no business messing around with each other. (laughs) And uh, one couple uh, influences the other in a very negative way. And things get raucous, ugly, funny, scary. I always like to puke on stage. I get to do that. Uh, (laughs) Now we're getting down to it. That's really what you look at scripts (laughs) for? Do I puke? Yeah, Kind of, (laughs) yeah. I love speaking with great artists. It reveals so much. Uh, um, But yes, it's I guess how I would boil it down is there are four people acting horrendously age inappropriate (laughs) and that's entertainment yes laurie metcalf thank you so much for being with us today you're welcome downstage center our engineer for this downstage center program is john kilgore post-production is by chad bernhard our researcher is craig thompson our director of web development is rob perry and our producer is gail yankosik this edition of downstage center was recorded at the john kilgore sound and recording studio in manhattan Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. 
If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.